So Genesis uh, chapter 39 and verse 1. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favour in his sight and attended him and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge and everything because of him. And sorry, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concerns about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He's not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you've brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, This is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favour in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Let's pray. Father, we ask this morning simply that you would open our eyes that we might see wonderful things out of your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All of us like feeling at home, don't we? We know there are certain places where we can be ourselves and where we're just going to be accepted. We're not seen as weirdos. We're not seen as odd. Our little quirks are put up with. We just relax. We're not on guard. We're not scared. We're not fearful. We feel at peace. 
Uh, it might be literally at home. Sadly, for some people, that's not the case. Even home can be a place uh, of fear and discomfort. But hopefully at some point in our life, we, we've just had that experience of thinking, yes, now I can relax. With friends on holiday, colleagues in the office, wherever it might be. If you're, if you're a Christian, if you're someone who's following Christ, uh, then one of the things the Bible makes really clear is that you're, you're not yet at home. That in some ways, you're, you're a bit of a stranger, a bit of an oddball. Now, you might have felt this. Now, it might be you're seen as an oddball because, you know, you're just a bit odd. Okay, that's possible. We are a bit strange, some of us. You know, that's, but, but I'm not really talking about that. I'm talking instead about the way that the, the Bible describes Christians as aliens. Children, have you ever heard that before? Bible says you're an alien. Okay. Now, what do you think it means? It doesn't mean it doesn't mean you come from another planet, or you need to grow antennae, or you're kind of green and squidgy underneath. But when the Bible calls us aliens, what it's saying is that that actually our true home is another country. Our true home is heaven. And actually, for, for, for a large portion of the Bible story, God's people live in a place that just doesn't quite feel at home. Uh, they live in a place where it's hard to follow Christ, hard to follow God. And in the Old Testament, the, the country that kind of symbolises that is Egypt. Uh, as the story goes on later than the story of Joseph, uh, the Israelite, God's people, go down and they live in Egypt for, for hundreds of years. Uh, and then from the rest of, well, from their time of escape from Egypt onwards, that the constant warning is, is don't go back there. Okay? Don't go back to live like you lived in Egypt. It's the kind of equivalent of Paul saying to us, once you've started following Christ, don't go back to living like you did beforehand. But the problem is, the world around will always push you in that direction. The, the story of Joseph tells us about a, a faithful man, Joseph. Uh, earlier in the story, we saw that he's, he's basically a good guy. In this story, we see him trying to live righteously. But where's he trying to do it? Not in the promised land, not amongst brothers and sisters who are trying to encourage him on in the way, but down in Egypt. J Joseph, therefore, becomes, I think, a model for, for the people of God. He's one of the patriarchs of Israel, one of the 12 brothers who found the 12 tribes of Israel. And Joseph's story is teach them how to live in Egypt. And therefore, Joseph is two things for us. He's an example to us but he's also a signpost for us. He's an example to us in how he lives, but he's a signpost to us as he points us to Christ. So let's just dive in and look at the story. As the story begins, he's just arrived in Egypt and Potiphar, who seems to be an important official in Pharaoh's household, has bought him. You can imagine at this point what Joseph is thinking. Now, this is Joseph. He's been given those dreams. You know, one day you will rise up and your brothers will bow down before you. And, and you could imagine he might be thinking, well, it doesn't look like it, Lord. You know, where's this promise that I'm going to be a great ruler? Uh, he's the lowest of the low, a slave away from the promised land uh, and working menial tasks uh, for Potiphar, the Egyptian. But, verse 2, the Lord was with him. And slowly, it seems he, he rises up the ranks. He gets more and more trusted and more and more responsibility is put in his hands until ultimately he's the, well, the chief servant in Potiphar's household. Verse 4, Joseph found favour in his sight and attended him, that's Potiphar. And so Potiphar made him overseer of all the house and put in, in his hands all that he had. 
Joseph is down in Egypt. He's away from God's people. But what does he do? He just gets on and serves. That's the first picture here. The picture is of Joseph the humble servant. He's not doing anything impressive. He's not doing anything that looks like it's going to further his career. He's not doing anything that particularly sees um, or would seem to him that connects into God's plan to, to raise him up as a great ruler. But he just gets on and serves. Now, very often in our lives, our, our calling, if you want to use that word, uh, is simply to get on with our day-to-day lives. Uh, we read in the Bible about God doing spectacular things, you know, parting the Red Sea or Jesus walking on water, these kind of miraculous things. And we think, well, surely to follow that God would be dramatic and exciting. We'd see power and glory day after day, but, but that's not the case. Our calling as Christians most of the time is just to get on faithfully living for God in the situations to which we've been called. Uh, this term midweek, uh, we're looking at the book of Colossians. Uh, we've not got there yet, but, but very soon we'll look at a, at a little bit of Colossians that talks to those who are servants. Uh, Paul says this, servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are, rec- you are serving the Lord Christ. That's Colossians 3. See how it describes the life of Joseph, what he's doing in Egypt? He gets on serving Potiphar. Uh, and, and Paul's words to us, so look, especially in the days of the Roman Empire, you may well be a slave. And probably in those days, if you are a slave, you're going to stay a slave. Not many of them got free. But even as a slave, you can serve the Lord. In fact, that's his command. His command to the slaves is to treat their masters almost as if they were Christ. To think of their work as a slave as if it was serving the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. It's very likely what you spend most of your week doing doesn't feel hugely significant. Maybe one or two of you got exciting jobs, and that's great. But for many of us, what we're doing is mundane. I don't know exactly what Joseph was doing here. Presumably start at the bottom, up early, cleaning, getting food ready for the household. Nothing impressive, nothing spectacular. And yet he was just serving the Lord. That is your calling. Uh, that Martin Luther, he, the great reformer, said this, God milks the cow through the hands of the milkmaid. Okay. That The way God works in the world is through normal people just doing their duty, their jobs. But we shouldn't think of that as, as if it's not serving Christ. It's not as if serving Christ is, is just turning up to church to set the chairs up and coming along to the Bible study and occasionally telling someone about your faith. I mean, those things are serving Christ. But they're not the only ways you serve Christ. We also serve Christ by faithfully getting on with whatever we've been called to do. Perhaps you're a mum looking after children at home. Well, you're not simply serving the children, you're serving Christ. Perhaps you're in an office and you're endlessly just shoving data around a spreadsheet. And it feels like at the end of one week, you're no further on than you were at the beginning. 
Well, you're, you are somehow serving Christ. He is pleased with your obedience. Uh, the world would be a disaster if we were all preachers or if we all spent all our time running Bible studies. The world would be a disaster if we all spent our time in prayer meetings, frankly. It is a good thing to serve God faithfully in the place he's put you. Uh, even if uh, that place has no, if you like, lasting significance. So don't misunderstand me here. Uh, many of our jobs, much of our work, is, it's, it's temporary. Okay? It's not going to last. It's probably not going to be in heaven. But that doesn't mean it isn't significant. It doesn't mean that it's not a way of pleasing the Lord. Right from the beginning, we're told uh, that man was made to work. Work, as, work itself is a good thing. Uh, most of our jobs, all of our jobs, whether they're formal jobs, employment, or just sort of uh, informal jobs, working around at home, are ways of fitting out that second commandment, the second greatest commandment, love your neighbour as yourself. Joseph gets on and humbly serves. But, but for Joseph, uh, it's not a path to glory. Uh, yes, he's raised up, but it all starts to go wrong uh, in, from verse 6 onwards. Uh, we're told in verse 6, at the beginning of that new paragraph, that he was a handsome man, handsome in form and appearance. He's the only man in the Bible described that way. And the only other person actually described with those kind of words is his mother. They're obviously a beautiful family. And after a time, his beauty catches Potiphar's wife's eye. I don't know her name. And so she, well, verse 7, she commands him, lie with me. She casts her eyes on Joseph, verse 7, and said, lie with me. It's not so much an invitation as a command, she's the boss's wife, come here and lie with me. You can imagine the pressure on Joseph. Potiphar's obviously not around. But, but he knows to say no is going to get him in all sorts of trouble. She's the boss's wife after all. But, verse 8, he refuses. And just look why he refuses. Behold, because of my, me, my master has no concern about anything in his house. He's put everything in my charge. He's not kept back anything from me except you. Okay, look what my master's done for me, he says. But how does he finish? How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph knows that, that, that sleeping with Potiphar's wife wouldn't just be a sin against Potiphar's, Potiphar himself, but also against God. All sin ultimately is against God. Now, let me just ask you a question. How does, how does, how does Joseph know that it would be wrong to sleep with Potiphar's wife? How does Joseph, just think, I'm not, it's not a question, put your hands up question. How, how, does, how does Joseph know it would be wrong to sleep with Potiphar's wife? We're in chapter 39 of Genesis. Where so far in the first 38 chapters have we been given the command that it's wrong to sleep with someone else's wife? In one sense, nowhere. Okay, that the commandment, do not commit adultery, doesn't come till Exodus chapter 20. So how does Joseph know it's wrong? Well, Joseph knows it's wrong because that there are certain laws, certain ways of living that God has just woven into the hearts of human beings. Paul, Paul says that, that God writes the law on our hearts. Uh, and sexual morality is part of that law code that's just embedded in all of us. We don't need to be Christian. We don't need to have read the Bible. It's just imprinted on our hearts. Uh, the reason I mention it is sometimes pe people... Uh, attack Christian morality, particularly on issues of sexuality nowadays, 
and mock the Bible. So you might have heard people saying things like this. Oh, you're telling me that, that the Bible says it's wrong for, for example, two men to sleep together. But the Bible also says you shouldn't eat pork. The Bible says you shouldn't eat prawns. The Bible says you shouldn't wear clothes that are of mixed material. So why are you just picking and choosing what laws uh, you think apply today? Have you ever heard that? Yeah, it happened on the West Wing. You know, the president sort of mocked a journalist. The journalist said, look, Mr. President, you know, the Bible says that, dot, dot, dot. And he says, all oh, right, I noticed you're wearing cotton and wool clothing. I noticed your son was disrespectful to you earlier and you didn't stone him. And just shames this, this Christian. What are we to do with that? Joseph is an example of someone who, before the law is ever written down, the Ten Commandments ever come, before all those other laws are given about pork, he knows that adultery is wrong. Because it's law that's written on his heart. What you see in the Bible is that there are certain laws that are given at Mount Sinai, given when the, the, the um, uh, Israelites escape Egypt and come to Mount Sinai, that apply from that moment right up to the time of Jesus. But they're only ever found in those brackets in that time period. There are other laws that are clearly in place before the Ten Commandments were given and after the Ten Commandments were given, after and before that period of Israel. And those are the laws that are written on our hearts. Those are the laws that continue forever. So, so if you can find, before Exodus 20, when the, the laws are given, including all those laws about pork and prawns and all the rest of it, if you can find someone obeying a law before that period, it's a clue that it still is binding today. It wasn't just a special law for Israel and the country. It is an eternal law. Adultery is one of those, and it is simply always wrong. You can imagine Joseph wanting to justify it in his heart. Well, look, if I don't sleep with her, then I'm going to get sacked. And if I do, well, it's only one little sin, and I'll be able to keep my position, and maybe I can be an influence for good. But no, sin is always wrong. How can I commit this great wickedness against God? And so he refuses. And it's not just a one-off, is it? You see that? Verse 10, day after day, he would not listen to her. Day after day, she commands him to come and lie beside her, but he refuses. He's not just a humble servant, but a holy servant. And again, he becomes a picture for Israel, a picture for, for how to live in a country and in an environment that is hostile. And so he's a picture for us. Uh, certainly in that area of sexual morality. Okay, we are called to be pure and holy. Uh, we're called to, to stay with our our husband or our wife, and that we're told that that is the only context for sexual activity. But, but actually, I don't, I don't think that, that this is just about, about sex. If Egypt is a picture of, of the world around, then, then Potiphar's wife is a picture of well, temptation in general. As the Bible story goes on, you, you get these kind of stories coming up a few times. You think about Samson and Delilah. Again, a, a woman trying to tempt one of God's leaders into sin. The book of Proverbs, uh, where this woman, who's just called the adulteress, comes along to try and charm the young man away from God. And it's not just about, about lust, it's a picture of all kinds of temptation. The world around is always trying to pressurize God's people to compromise and become like them. Uh, that's because at the moment we are both in the world, but we're not meant to be of the world to use language uh, from the New Testament. Uh, so Paul, as he, as he writes to the Corinthians, describes them in two ways. He begins his letter to the Corinthians, 
to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified that is made holy in Christ Jesus. The church of God is in Corinth, but the Corinthians are also in Christ Jesus. And that's what makes the pressure feel so well heavy and intense. We are in Leeds, but the danger is that the Leeds, if you like, comes into the church. We're meant to be a church that is a light to the Gentiles, a city on a hill, salt, distinct from the world around. But the pressures of everyday life in the office or the school or whatever it might be, just tempt us constantly to compromise. And we justify it. Surely it makes sense for me to just sin in this little way in order that I can keep my job. Surely it makes sense for me to go out with the lads tonight and kind of behave like them because then they'll see that Christians aren't too weird and, you know, We justify sin in a thousand ways, but God's call is always to stay holy and distinct from the land around. I notice here in in the story of Potiphar and his wife, by the way, that it's not just the caricature um, sort of middle-aged man trying to run off with a younger woman. It is the woman who's tempted towards adultery. That is helpful, I think. There's a danger in, in... I think reading the Bible, you sort of think that lust is just a sin that tempts men. That's not at all the case. All of us are made with our own weaknesses, our own temptations. And the call of Genesis 39, the call of the whole Bible really, is to stay pure, stay holy servants, even when the pressure builds up. But I said this this passage is, is not just a series of commands, you know, work hard in your calling and please the Lord, resist temptation. If that's all it had to say to us, then it would just feel like a bit of a burden, wouldn't it? Man, okay, I know I've fallen here. I know I've struggled here. This passage is doing more than that, I think. Uh, Joseph is pointing us towards two other figures. The first figure that he's, he's twinned with really is Judah. Now, I'm sorry if you weren't here last week, but, but the, chapter 38 with the story of Judah and chapter 39, the story of Joseph, are, are in many ways sort of parallel. They happen at the same time, Okay, so if you were filming them, it would be like a split screen. I said last week you'd have to watch the story of Judah go across the top and Joseph across the bottom. They're happening at the same time. And they parallel themselves. So in verse uh, 1 of chapter 38, Judah, the brothers, goes down away from his brothers of his own choice. Beginning of the Joseph story, he is taken down as a slave away from his brothers, but against his will. So both are separated from their people. Both are then tempted into sexual sin. Do you remember Judah with Tamar who disguised herself as a prostitute? Joseph here with Potiphar's wife. One resists, Joseph, the other one gives in. Uh, both then come to a kind of trial scene. Uh, we're, we're told time and time and time again about this garment uh, that, that, that Potiphar's wife snatches. Children, you see what's going on in the story. Joseph runs away, he flees, but she grabs his coat and brings it out later as evidence when she goes to her husband and says, look, he tried to lie with me. She, he, she holds the coat. It's all coats in Joseph's story that get him into trouble. She holds the coat and says, look, he's guilty, but actually he was innocent. In the story of Judah, when Tamar is brought out, she produces again his personal items that she took when they slept together to prove his guilt. Joseph stays strong, Judah caves in. And so we might think, well, this is a story about obeying God and then we'll be blessed. But what happens to Joseph? 
because of his holiness, he ends up in jail. He's falsely accused and cast down. Sometimes you hear preachers say, if you just obey the Lord, your life will be blessing. If you really put your trust in God, then he will lead you in, in, to pleasant meadows. And he'll fill your bank account. He'll cure you of every disease. Your life will be happiness after happiness after happiness. And it is simply not true. Joseph shows us that. He shows us it in contrast to Judah, when the one who sins seemingly more or less gets away with it, and the one who stays holy ends up in prison. But he shows us even more as he pictures Christ. Uh, Joseph is a picture, I think, of Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus who came down voluntarily from his father's house to become man. Uh, Jesus who worked in anonymity for 30 years. Extraordinary, isn't it, to think that, that Jesus, the son of God, for the first 30 years of his life was a nobody. Just growing up in Bethlehem, Nazareth, training presumably to be a carpenter, working away. Although he had all the rights of the Prince of Heaven, he worked, unacknowledged, humbly, just at his calling. Jesus spent more of his life doing that, in fact, than he did preaching and doing miracles and all the stuff we read about in the Gospels. Now, we're not told much about his early life. We get the stories about his birth, don't we? And then it's basically silence. And then he comes on the scene age 30 and starts preaching. But although we're not told about it, it did happen. Quietly, humbly, the Son of God got on with his everyday calling until God called him to begin his saving uh, work. If Christ was willing to work humbly in anonymity, then so too surely should we. But, but Christ is pictured not just in that humble service, but I think too in the holiness that, that Joseph demonstrates. Again, the New Testament tells us that Jesus was tempted in every way, yet never stumbled. We think perhaps in the temptations of Jesus of the time he was in the desert with the devil, and you know, the three great temptations. But actually, it would have been non-stop. Throughout his entire life, Jesus was being tempted to sin, tempted to sin, tempted to sin. And had he put one foot wrong, then our salvation would have been lost. Remember, Jesus saving us isn't just about him dying on the cross, is it? It's not just that, that he came to die in our place, but also he had to live a, a perfect human life so that perfect human record could be credited to our account. And so every second of Jesus' life was a moment of intense pressure because had he sinned but once, then no one would be saved. There would be no perfect life record to credit to us. He wouldn't have been able to be a perfect sacrifice to die on the cross. He'd have had his own sin as well. And so, it, it, under far more pressure than Joseph, Christ remained pure. Not one wrong word, not one wrong, wrong word action, not one wrong thought. It's incredible, isn't it? And remember, he is truly a man. It's so tempting to think, well, he's God, it was easy for him. But, but it's not the case. He had to truly live as a man. It wasn't that he could kind of cheat as God and just kind of bat away temptation. He, he faced temptation as a real man and still stayed strong. And without that, well, no salvation. Uh, what I want to suggest to you uh, as we close is that, that it's only once we, uh, we, we trust Christ's righteous life in our place. It's only when we see that, that that is the basis of our acceptance before God 
that, that actually will ever learn to live humbly in the world and live holily in the world, if that's a word. If we think our salvation relies on us, if we try and bear the burden, then we're just going to get crushed. None of us ultimately stand strong in the face of temptation, not finally. None of us are happy just working away humbly in our jobs. We all end up grumbling and groaning. We all end up thinking that God is treating us unfairly. We all crumble when the world begins to tempt and seduce us. And so again, if we think that, that our salvation is our hands, we're likely to be crushed by that. I'm a failure as a Christian. God can't love me. I'll never make it safely home. But when you look at Joseph and see not just this sort of example to follow, but rather a picture of Christ who came and did everything you need to be saved, then actually our hearts become joyful rather than crushed. And it also comforts us when we find ourselves in Joseph's paths. Despite Joseph's holy life, our story ends, at least today, with him back in prison. The story ends with him cast down again. Now, just at the end, it seems he's on the, he's on the trail up, and we'll see that again next week. It seems like the, the worm is turning again. But, but actually, his holy life has led him to suffering. Uh, that may well happen in your life too. It may well be that the Lord calls you to, to, to obey him in a way that means that you're going to end up suffering, that does put your job in danger, that does risk a friendship, that does mean someone stands against you rather than for you. what's going to give you the courage to, to take that decision, to stick with the Lord rather than compromise and live like an Egyptian? Well, ultimately, what's going to give us that courage is seeing how great God's love for us is, that he came and walked the paths that we should have walked. And we see how great his love is for us, that he's not just a God in heaven who sends down these commands, stay holy, resist temptation, work hard, but actually he's a God who's come down and done that in our place. And then you realise how great and how secure his love is for us. And it means that when you are suffering, you don't need to doubt that he's actually against you. You may become ill. You may lose your job. You may mourn and grieve. You may become poor. You may become fearful. But that doesn't mean the Lord has left you. Because the promise of the Lord's love to you doesn't rest on your obedience and your holiness and your service but rather on the fact that Christ has done everything for you and Christ has gathered you. Uh, Don't ever wonder. Don't ever look at your circumstances to judge the Lord's love towards you, but rather look to the cross where God has given his only son in your place. So yes, at times the Christian life is hard. There is no immediate promise of blessing. But stick with the true Joseph, the true Christ. And one day the promise is that you will be lifted up, that he will take you safely home, that one day the tears will be moved uh, to joy. Uh, We've sung already in this service several songs that are sad songs. Well, that's the reality of the Christian life. But the promise all the way through scripture is that one day he will return. One day every tear will be wiped away. And one day you truly will feel at home. Let's pray. Father, we praise you uh, for your 
son. And we praise you uh, for his humility and holiness in the face of such temptation. Uh, we confess before you that uh, were it left to ourselves uh, to earn our place in heaven, that we'd be lost. Uh, we confess before you that we regularly stumble and fall. And so we ask that you look on us in Christ Jesus. We praise you that he has done everything we need for our salvation. And we ask, therefore, that you make us faithful servants, whatever circumstances you call us to. Uh, whether others recognise our gifts or not, or whether we see any earthly fruit or not, give us a joy, we pray, just in serving Christ. Know what a wonderful master he is. We ask in his name. Amen.